Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. It has been a long time, so hopefully uh, we have kept you all. We've done the uh, the media and the movie and the, the radio business uh, shenanigans of keeping people in suspense in order to build up excitement for the show. But we are back on, Mr. Host. How are you feeling in the month of uh, in the month of May here? Wonderful. Wonderful, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. What what has it been? Maybe a little over a month for us, huh? Since the last one, just about. I want to say five weeks. Okay. Yep. Sure enough. Well, but, but I think to say, it's important. Here. I, th- I think it's important that we indicate, you know, that. Well, we'll we'll talk about this a little bit, but you know, you were sick one week when we were going to go, um, and then other things have transpired. But we'll talk about it. That's correct. That's correct. Well, we're back. We're back in the building. We've got a great topic for everybody who's joining in today. Uh, We've also got a smorgasbord of pre-topic topics, if you will. Uh, Those of you who have been following us for a long time know we're humongous sports fans. So the the NFL draft uh, took place. We've got the playoffs in full swing for the NBA. Uh, We've got the host's favorite topic uh, Bruin hotly, and that, this is Boeing aircrafts. Uh, essentially, have become death machines. Uh, so we're gonna we're, we're gonna cover it all. It's gonna be a good one. Um, but yeah, did, is there something you wanted to say or add to that intro, sir? No, that's that's beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Well, we'll we'll get right into it. Uh, it's been a long time waiting since I've been able to hit this button. Yes, in... <laughs> that is great timing. I thought I had turned that on mute, that, that one soundbite on the switchboard there. Uh, but yes, yes, we had the NFL draft, which is uh, 
probably one of the most highly anticipated days in the sports calendar. Uh, for those of you who may be casual sports fans or not huge sports fans, there's something about the NFL draft um, MLB. Most people don't even know when the draft takes place and it's not highly published and you, you're not even going to have heard of the player that your team drafted and you probably won't even see him on the club for five years. So there's not too much to the MLB draft. Uh, NBA, the lottery is kind of cool, but not as hyped. Um, but there's something to the NFL draft. People mark it on their calendars. And it's, I guess, mainly because uh, uh, NFL and who they are. And also uh, because a lot of these players, at least in the first three or four rounds, are expected to be on the team the following year and make immediate impact. And so unless you're like a top five lottery pick in the NBA draft, even first rounders don't typically, you don't typically see them on the roster unless your team is, you know, unless you're one of the worst teams in the league, you may not see some of these rookies for a year or two. So maybe that's a a part of why the NFL draft is so um, highly anticipated, but be that as it may, it happened. And, And sir, we'll start with you since you've got three teams to report on. How do you believe your team's drafted and are you happy with what they've done? Well, before I do that, let me just comment on what you just said on what I think is some of the reasons why the other major sports leagues drafts are not as prominent. So you start with Major League Baseball, and, and you're absolutely correct. Oftentimes, you don't hear about who's been drafted. Yeah, we don't even know when the draft is. Um, and even when it happens, you don't even hear about the players your team may have drafted unless that player becomes a, a star. And all of a sudden, it's like, where did this guy come from? Oh, he was drafted a couple of years ago, you know, so on and so forth. Um, in the NBA, um, when, play, when college players used to stay two, three, four years, and so you had numerous college players being well-known, and then you add to that the draft lottery that came into play in 1985, the NBA draft was hyped also. But now... Other than the draft lottery, you know, the, the event of the lottery, okay, not even the, the draft day, but just the lottery event when they decide, where they find out who's going to be picking where, it's like, you know, I, I don't even watch the actual draft. I might watch the lottery, but not the draft. Right, right. So, so that's, that's basketball. Um, and hockey, I have no idea where their draft is, but... But the thing about uh, hockey, hockey's in some way almost similar to baseball because these guys have a minor league system and whatnot, and so, you know, you won't hear about them unless their guy comes up and becomes a star player. NFL, right. it's the because of the salary cap and because of the career, the average career being what? Is it four years, three or four years? Right, right. A right. lot of turnover. That, Exactly. So there's a premium placed on drafting of the younger players to try and maintain a somewhat young team, if you can, uh, because of the brutality of the sport. Right. That makes sense. No, that makes sense. I didn't. I didn't think about that one piece. But like you said, the, the average career being so short that the rosters get turned over so much, you. You need the new sacrificial lamb crop to come in and give you everything they got. <laughs> oh man! So, uh, so about the draft, sir. About oh, yeah. your right. your your Cowboys and your New York contingents. 
So let me start with uh, my New York Jets. So they drafted a big-time D-tackle. Yep. So we'll see uh, if they have stopped the the uh, the gashing up the middle now that they got two solid D-tackles. My New York Giants. Um, I hear a phone dialing in the background. Um, my New York Giants, I have no idea what they were doing. They drafted a quarterback nobody ever heard out of heard of out of Duke of all places. I I didn't know Duke was a bastion of college football prowess. Uh, all of a sudden, and they and that I don't even know what division they play in in college. Um, Duke Duke so, is in the ACC. They're in the ACC, so it's not a huge conference, but it's a decent conference. But Duke is more known for point guards than quarterbacks. Exactly, and so. Everybody was clamoring for Dwayne Haskins out of Ohio yes, State. Yes. I wasn't so much clamoring for him, but you know, I I get it why people were clamoring for him. No one saw the uh, whatever the guy's name that they drafted. I don't even know his name anymore. Uh, no one saw that coming, but we'll see because you never know. Because it's 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 a really it's a crapshoot when it comes to quarterbacks. I don't care what they did or didn't do in college. You never know until they hit the field. What you got? That is. Yep, that's very true. You can. You can somewhat project out other positions, but the quarterback position, I mean, you could look down the the history, the history of the league and how many number one picks were bust versus lived up to that hype, probably a coin flip, and how many of the best Hall of Fame caliber quarterbacks were found in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth rounds. Exactly. And there's no uh, physical attribute that's telling. I mean, you can have the classic six foot five, two hundred and thirty pound rocket arm quarterback who can't throw for a lick. You know what I mean? Can't do anything yep. as a quarterback. And then yep. the guy that's you know six feet, you know, doesn't have the prototypical strong arm, but has everything else you're looking for and can run the offense that you have. So who knows? Who knows? We'll see. Time will um, tell. And then uh, what about your boys? My Cowboys obviously didn't have a first-round pick to draft in the draft. Their first-round pick was Amari Cooper, who they got from the Raiders, and him being turning 25 this summer, to me, I'll take it. Yep, um, yep. Because he's young enough to, you know, we're, we're going to get a good five years out of him. So, and other than that, they drafted a D-tackle in the second round. You know, mixed reviews. I really don't care. Uh, all I know is that uh, the Rams rushed for 275 yards. Um, 200 of which came from a guy who was overweight, out of the league, stepped on the field and gashed him up the middle in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 true. I mean, the Rams. I mean, it's true. Everybody needs to win in the trenches, and you can't get run on like that. Uh, but the Rams were so kind of versatile offensively and multi-dimensional. Um, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to cover up everything. I I, I think yeah, their no, no, plan. No, 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 no. Which, but the but the Chicago Bears on Sunday Night Football. This is the game I was watching when I was flying back from Virginia on the plane. Right. They they kind of gave gave you the blueprint how to defend them, and then of course Belichick, what he did in the Super Bowl, which we we talked about this how how simple the strategy was. <laughs> To just ru- rush straight, not not flow with them when they're doing their zone blocking. Um, yeah. Don't run with them, but rush at them. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, if you can't, you get Dallas can match up in the secondary with those guys on the Rams. It was shocking that that offensive line for the Rams was just whipping those guys up front, just whipping them. Yep. Yep. An old-fashioned whipping up front. So they need they need they needed a horse. I don't know if this guy's it. We'll see. But they needed it like one of those immovable objects. Yeah. Well, at the very least, you could say they they were in agreement with knowing what they needed and took a stab at it. So now you just keep exactly. your fingers crossed. He pans out. Right. All right. What about your Niners? Uh, well, so as I think I stated on the show that we did maybe right before the draft or a couple of weeks before the draft, my hope was that they traded back to accumulate picks because they didn't have that many picks coming into this year's draft. And I felt like we had more than one hole to fill. Um, but they went with the consensus pick. Everybody said, look, uh, Arizona is going to draft Kyler Murray number one, and we don't need a quarterback. And, uh, the, the general consensus coming into this draft was that the best player in the draft was Nick Bosa, brother of Joey Bosa. He's supposed to be better than his brother by the scouts, at least, account. And uh, so that's who they drafted. So I guess you could say it's no surprise. That was the word on the street for as soon as it was found out that Arizona was interested in a quarterback, uh, that that's who they were going to draft. That's who they drafted. Then they did trade back in later rounds to accumulate a couple more picks. Uh, But I'm excited about Bosa, and I'm excited about Debo Samuel in the second round, our first pick in the second round. He's supposed to be a really good wide receiver, Uh, so so we'll see. But really, um, Nick Bosa, I mean, he better be what everyone thinks he is because I think this is now the fifth year in a row that the 49ers with their first pick have gone D-line. And uh, if you go five years in a row with a top 10, top 15 pick in the D-line, your defensive line better be the best in the NFL. And so far, it's looking like we've hit on one of those players. So uh, we'll see if Bosa can turn things around in that regard. So I'm happy it wasn't exactly what I wanted them to do, but um, it looks like they got some talent. I'll tell you one thing, and this is a side note, I'm not super happy about them drafting a punter in the fourth round. Uh, so this guy better be able to play a little free safety in a pinch or something. Let me ask you a very, very important question. Yep. There's word on the street. I'm not sure which street it is, but there's word on the street that the 49ers trade for Jimmy Giraffalopolo, um is reminiscent in terms of what the Patriots are going to end up getting in terms of draft picks versus what we thought they were getting at the initial trade is almost reminiscent of the Herschel Walker trade. Is there any truth to that? So that, I mean, of course it all remains to be seen, right? So a, we have to see on our end that Jimmy Garoppolo is who everybody says he is because mm-hmm. he looked great in the last five games of the season where he was traded to us when we were already mathematically eliminated and there was no tape on him. And he beat a lot of people that weren't expecting us to give them any kind of fight. Cause we were one in 12 or whatever. So I don't put too much stock into those five games. So you look at the first three games of the season, this past season, where everybody knew he was going to be the starter. There was film on him and you're coming in and expected to perform and he did not 
didn't look bad, but he also didn't look really great in those three games. So you don't really know. And then he tears his ACL. So the book is still out on Jimmy Garoppolo. Is he good? Um, if he's good, you know, how good is he? Uh, he still only has, I think, like 10, 10 or 15 starts under his belt uh, to his career. So it's still relatively young. So you got to figure it out on that end. And then the players that um, the Patriots selected. So they got uh, Nikhil Harry, who was supposed to be one of the best receivers in the draft. Um, but we'll have to see how they pan out. What, what, what does it look like to you from an outsider looking in? I was, like you said, I was shocked by them going so many years in a row taking that position. Um, would you not think that they should, by this time, have a fantastic D-line rotation? You would certainly hope so. All under the age of 26, 27? Right. So I don't know if they thought they were taking the best player available, but who knows? I mean, the the one difference with Nick Bosa and the other defensive linemen we drafted are all the other defensive linemen we drafted are defensive tackles. Nick Bosa is a true end or edge, as they're calling it these days. We have not spent the, any of our first-round picks on an edge player, but nevertheless, a defensive lineman. So, Okay. NBA playoffs. NBA playoffs. Uh, so how are your New York Knicks doing? They are doing <laughs> not very well. <laughs> they, but they fortunately missed the playoffs. And, you know, hey, you can always have hope. And the hope is as long as they're not in the playoffs, they have a chance at winning the, the lottery and getting the number one pick. Because fortunately, they now, after many years, they now own their own pick in the first round. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, there were there were uh, murmurings of your New York Knicks at the Houston Golden State game yesterday. Did did you catch any of that on the media? In the media, I should say. Uh, no. So, Maybe about uh, uh, Durant going there. Yeah. So. Houston's fans, they're they're engaged. The Rockets have given them a good show the past couple of years, and they've got their ear to the streets, as we say. And uh, so every time in the second half there, as the game started to pick up in intensity, uh, every time Kevin Durant went to the free throw line, there was an audible chant of New York Knicks. Uh, and so I don't know if they're doing that to get in his head since he keeps ducking the media question and doesn't want to speak to it. But everybody knows the rumors out there that he's going to go to the Knicks. And so uh, you heard Houston's fans in full throat chanting New York Knicks every time this guy lined up to shoot a free throw. <laughs> and they did this at, in Houston? In Houston, yeah, to try and get in his head, I'm sure. Hmm. Well, your series is tied up 2-2. And um, I'm not sure why the Warriors are playing with them. But to be honest... Yeah, I know, you know, it uh Clay has almost all but disappeared in this series. He can't hit uh he can't hit the ocean. Uh you've got Steph who just doesn't look to be himself now. He's dealing with uh 
dislocated finger or a couple of dislocated fingers in his left hand that were dislocated, I think, in game one. And so he's coming out every game, and they're taped together, and it's his non-shooting hand. It's his platform hand, as they were calling it. Um, and so Reggie Miller, obviously great guy to have on the broadcast, especially when talking about a pure shooter, um, because he's talking about how that injury might affect Steph or be affecting Steph. Um, you can see that off the ball, if you follow him off the ball, he, he's kind of grabbing at those fingers still a little bit when he's not in the play. Um, but he doesn't look to be himself either. And so I don't know if, if it's the injuries, uh, or some sort of combination of the injuries and it has the Warriors have kind of moved away a little bit from what got them here in the first place over the past couple of years was just they used to play how San Antonio played a lot of ball movement a lot of cutting uh, the ball hopping around a lot no single person could be focused on and they've now kind of just let Kevin Durant carry him and gone ISO just give Durant the ball and I guess a shooter, especially like Clay, probably not so much Steph, since Steph can create his own shot off the dribble. But someone like Clay, who needs a guard to create a shot for him, uh, he plays in rhythm. And so if you're just sitting there watching Durant, kind of like Houston's problem a couple of years back before they got Chris Paul, where everyone would just sit back and watch Harden, uh, they get cold. Shooters get colder. People don't have a rhythm. And then all of a sudden you give them the ball and have them jack up a shot. It doesn't look good. And that's kind of what it's starting to look like with them in Durant. But um, we'll see. I mean, it should be it's, now that it's 2-2. It should have been 3-1 or even over by now. Uh, we'll, we'll see uh, how the series unfolds moving forward. You still, uh, I imagine, from that comment and as an outsider, you have no faith in the Rockets' ability to beat the Warriors. No. No, James Harden to me is a choker. Playoff choker. <laughs> until yeah. he shows until he shows different. Right, well of course. Until he shows different. Of course. So Yeah. We'll we'll have to see. Uh maybe this yeah, if he shows differently in this series, maybe you come on the next show and extend your apologies and if not yeah, exactly. you come on the next show and you say and, I told uh, you so. Uh, that's right. And I, I have no problem <laughs> apologizing. But I don't think I will be. There put it this it. way: if I'm apologizing, that means the Warriors got eliminated. Yeah, right. That's an apology I don't want to hear. So exactly, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll we'll have to see. Uh, we do have some plane business to cover. Boeing, the the business is going down. So we'll get to that now. <laughs> Uh, as as America's potential number one Boeing fan, sir, what do you have to say about all of these Boeing planes sliding off runways and crafting, <laughs> plummeting into the earth? <laughs> well, first, let me say, uh, if it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. <laughs> <laughs> Still sticking by your sticking by your lady. That's that's what I'm talking about. Um. Let me first talk about uh, 737 MAX update. They're about uh, 200 hours into their recertification of their MAX, MAX variant of the 737. And they think by, if not late June, early July, they'll be ready to recertify the plane. So that's uh, coming along. My suspicion is that whatever software fixes they did, is to limit the amount that this system 
um, pushes the nose down so it doesn't scare the hell out of the pilots. But but by now, I'm presuming that when the plane goes back in service, the airline's going to make sure all their pilots who fly that plane are, are trained on this system, even though the system operates in the background and there's really nothing that they can do. Yep. It's not, it's not something like they can activate, but they can deactivate it. And another thing I found out, by the way, Mr. Producer, is that there are systems like that, not exactly like that, but systems that do certain things in the background on many different types of aircraft. Um, obviously, we've never heard about them because there's never been two planes crashing within five months. But, um, yeah. And it is right now, I think Boeing has said to date, and this is before there's been official blame laid and lawsuits have been engineered and all that stuff, but so far it's cost them over a billion. Wow. Do you uh do you happen to know like the net worth of Boeing? Oh yeah, they're um trillion dollar company? No, 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 no. They're not a trillion dollar company, but they're 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 under five hundred billion. So I want to say they're they're between two and four hundred billion in their in their stock val- stock market value. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Put it this so way: they can, I read, they can absorb I read, the loss. Today. Well, I don't know if you could. I don't. Well, my hands are in air quotes. I'm, yeah, they'll have no choice but to absorb it. How they absorb it, I have no idea. But I did read that they had eight billion in cash on hand. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, do they? So you said, you know, that so the billion is what they had lost to date, uh, assuming that the projected date to get these puppies back in the air is late July. Uh, have they projected that forward at all? Will that cap at like yes. 1.2, one and a half? So the losses currently are the difference between the amount of planes that that they were building per month and what they scale back to since they can't actually ship them. They're still manufacturing them. And the reason they're still making them is because they had a backlog. Yeah. I mean, they got orders of like over 5,000 for that plane. So they're just steady making them, but they just slowed down a little bit. But um, And so because they've slowed down, they lose cash flow. So that's where that billion... Has, has and um, I think included in that is whatever contractual arrangements they have with airlines who had them and have to ground them. Now, one figure that has been floated around is when all is said and done, including lawsuits, that it may be in the in the neighborhood of four billion dollars. Okay, okay, wow, yeah, that's a that's a heavy hit. Well, so. Yep. Do they try to recop some of that money by stating that some of these airlines are responsible for not having trained their pilots oh, accordingly? Oh, yeah, they're not going to take the full hit by themselves on any lawsuits. Absolutely not. The airlines have a share in this, and they have a share in it. To what extent it's going to be, who knows? Um, because even if it's a training issue, even if it's pilot, you know, the pilots were at fault to a certain degree, all that's still airline. Um, and then whatever blame... Boeing has for whatever. Um, so, no, they're not going to take the 100% brunt of the lawsuits, but they're going to take a sizable portion. How much of that uh, insurance covers? I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure some of it, 
um, because they're the ones that the insurance lawyers are going to be the ones doing the negotiations. Right, right. Not Boeing's lawyers. So, we'll see. Okay. All right. Well, interesting stuff. Uh, did you want to touch touch base oh, at yeah, all there was, about there the? Was one, there was one other thing, um, and because you remember back in late March, the 767 freighter cargo plane that crashed in Houston. Um, right. Which we, which we haven't heard anything about, and I'm very interested in finding out what caused that crash, only because there's a ton of 767-300s out there as passenger planes. And the only thing that they found out, but they don't know why this happened, is that when he, the pilot was on the approach and the flight data recorder showed that the engines revved up to full power, the pilot, well, I'm saying the pilot, whomever was flying the plane, the engines revved up to full power, and the aircraft pitched up as if to climb, okay, and then went to a an extreme nose-down degree. So pitched up and then, then down. And they said both of them, both of those things, including the, the going to full power on the engines, all three of those were human-induced. Meaning, huh? The, the, it wasn't on autopilot, so it wasn't an autopilot that revved, that pulled, pushed the engines up to full power. It wasn't the autopilot that pitched the plane up, and it wasn't the autopilot that pushed the plane down. They said that was human induced in some way, shape, or form. They have not explained what that you know, like they haven't just come out and said, "Hey, the pilot did it," or you know, but they just said all they know was not caused by the autopilot. So you can draw your okay. conclusions from that. So, I don't know what all that means in terms of okay, well, what what the hell was happening and whatnot, but I'm very interested in that one because the 767-300 is a popular plane. It's just not getting as much because there was only the crew on there, the two pilots, you know, and the relief pilot. Um, so there was only three crew members. So the the loss of life in comparison to the two 737s is huge. One's a freighter, yeah. one's a, a passenger plane. So I get I get that, but they forget that that, pass, that freighter, that cargo plane, is used as a passenger plane also all over the world. And there are more 767-300s flying than the 737 MAX. Like, huh, that's, yeah, like, interesting. Remember, remember, there was only 50 of the 737 MAXs in the U.S., Right? And 300 throughout the world. There are way more 767s in the U.S. than 50 flying commercially. So I want to know what the hell caused that accident. Yeah, no, that that actually that actually is interesting. Um, You would imagine. I mean, so it sounds like from from what you said in the report, uh, they're insinuating or saying without saying. That uh, this was pilot error, not not aircraft error. Um, no, they're saying those three actions were 
human done induced. by the pilot, right? That's, right. The, that's the language they use. They didn't. It's like they don't want to name names yet. They just say human <laughs> right. induced. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, I, I'll, I'll take from that exactly what it sounds like. Um, but yeah, no, that see, well, you're you are the resident aviation expert, so um, that's that's interesting. I actually had no idea. Other than kind of like what you said, um, you know, I knew that there were 767s out there, uh, but that, you know, that this had happened and that they're used in such such high frequency to carry regular people, but nobody seems to be clamoring about that. Right. And I mean, I guess, you know, it's not to be the loss of human life is not to be taken lightly. Um, so obviously, I guess when something like that happens, um you know, there's there's something to be said about that, where you just you have more people to answer to, essentially. Yeah. Yep. Um. But yeah, no, interesting, interesting. Yep. So, all right. Well, that's about it for our aviation update. Uh, shall we dip into the topic? Let's let's roll on it. <clears throat> what do we uh, What do we have in store today, Mister Host? What did we whip up? So, technology. I mean, we're we're 19 years into the 21st century. Yes, indeed. Or, or technically, we're 18 years in because you don't actually count the year 2000. That's actually the end. 2000 is the end of the 20th century. 2001 is the start of the 21st century. But um, that's neither here nor there. Um, so there was an open question, you know, how are – we're going to talk about OCG mostly today specifically, but just in general, how are substance abuse treatment providers incorporating technology into the provision of their treatment services? And I wanted to start off the discussion by asking you first a question, and then I'll answer the same question, because when you had your treatment experience, it was in the 90s. Okay, um, versus mine being in the very, very, very late 80s. So from your experience, when you were at your treatment experience, what technology, if any, was available to you as a client during your treatment experience? Well, first and foremost, okay, we're going to change the timestamp on me because I don't want to be older than I already am perceived to be with the grays in my hair and in my beard. Uh, but I was not in treatment in the 90s. I was in treatment in the early 2000s. Okay. <laughs> and we don't even need to throw early out there to make it sound better. We can just say 2000s. Okay. Uh, but, but, yeah, no, I, I came in in 2001. Uh, so technology, well, uh, so I guess, like, the, the, the very first, like, clamshell flip phone, uh, uh, had come out and that was kind of a thing. I remember getting one of those when I had become a phase four and being excited to do that. But prior to entering, I guess the little Nokia handheld phones had started to become a thing. And I'd say that was maybe no more than a couple of years um, after pagers. Pagers kind of were the thing in, in high school. But what, 
what um, let me let me rephrase the question. What I mean by that is, what, while you were in treatment, like what were you exposed to? What, did you have access to computers? Oh, did you have access to saying. computers in school? You know, et cetera. What kind of technology did you have in the treatment realm? In the treatment setting, no, no, no computers. Uh, the, the technology we had access to. Uh, like a CD player was kind of cool. We had a couple, okay. a couple of boom boxes, mm-hmm. and uh, let me think. I think um, maybe we had like uh, like a DVD player, so like we could watch a movie every once in a while. I think, but that was that was about it. What about in the classroom and school? Uh, no, uh, no computers were accessible. Now my experience was a little different. I wasn't, I only was at the school for a couple of weeks until they, uh, they kind of made me, uh, Joe Williams, personal assistant to go to the (laughs) food bank and home Depot and all that, because I was, Mm -hmm. I think I was the first, they said I was the first adolescent client to come into treatment and already have my high school diploma. Mm -hmm. And, uh, because of that, I didn't need high school credit, and um, and because I was a little bit of a punk as a teenager, uh, I told them I wasn't really fond of waking up at 6.30 to go to school, especially when I didn't need to go to school, uh, and in classic day-top form, they said, too bad, you'll do it anyway, and so uh, they would send me over to school, and I would just go to sleep on uh, whatever desk they sat me at. And then the teachers a couple of times threatened that they would fail me if I slept through class. And I said, you can go ahead and fail me. I've already got my diploma. That doesn't really mean much to me. And so they would send me back to the bench. And so I would be sitting on the bench for hours at a time, basically every school day until I imagine now being on the other side of things. They uh, apied this in a staff meeting and said, look, he's not going to go, and if he goes, he's not going to do anything, and he doesn't need to because he's got his diploma. We need to find something else for him to do. Uh, And I became Joseph Williams' personal assistant, and then Tony Esputo eventually joined the crew, and I I kind of assisted them, too, in their daily adventures. Exactly. But but from what I can recall, yeah, none of the students over there had um, computers or anything like that. They all did work out of workbooks, pencil and paper, and uh, electric pencil sharpener. That was kind of cool. <laughs> well, we weren't too far off from you, from your experience. I mean, I know fax machines were were, were in vogue at the time. Um, I still hadn't seen one, but um, the – you know, other than your, if if you were able to somehow finagle in a uh, a clock radio, or if someone was able to bring in, uh, you know, like you said, a boombox, but other than that, you know, you were using landline phones, and that was it. However, the Swan Lake facility did have a huge, and when I say huge, I mean huge. Mr. Producer, you know, when you're driving down 101 past the uh, Moffett Field Air Base, and you see those satellite dishes. Yes. Okay, so the, a satellite dish that size was on the uh, property of the Swan Lake facility, and I presume that it was for satellite television. Um, however, we were never able to get it to work. But other than hmm. that, um, there was no um, you know, technology that was existing at the time, um, you know, because computers were out by then. 
Um, computers came out in the early 80s, 80, 80 81, 82. Um, but we didn't have access, never saw one, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you move forward through time, and as technology grows by leaps and bounds, you know, other than the utilization of it in the administration of the program, um, you know, we pretty much did a very good job of keeping clients in the dark. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and with good reason, because as we now know, as we're experiencing, right, with technology, especially the technology that's being developed, the you know, the personal technology, um, the issues that arise, of course, were confidentiality um, and and using it in the treatment environment for negative reasons. Um, even to this day, um, the issue with residential programs that you know that they struggle with are clients having cell phones. You know, as prominent as a necessary tool as cell phones are now, okay. You know, we still don't allow them. Right. In the treatment environment. Um, in 2019, and and obviously, there's no reason for a client to have them now. There is an argument that could be made, but I don't think we're going for it yet, but it's a legitimate argument about when clients leave the facility to go to, you know, legal appointments, medical appointments, et cetera, right. you know, that they have a means to communicate with the facility. However, you know, I don't think anyone has come, been able to answer so far. I'm not saying there isn't an answer, but no one has so far. My pushback on that, which is um, – Although payphones do not exist like they did before, where they were, you know, every mile or so you could find a payphone. That's no longer the case. Right. So, um, you know, what, what, how could, can clients communicate if, you know, something happened or they need to contact the facility? And we have an 800 number and all that good stuff, but they would have to be able to access someone's landline to use it or someone's borrow someone's phone. Um, right. But at least my opinion is that to date so far the risk and the negative things that can happen in the facility with a phone that's snuck in are still far greater than the what if, if someone needs to contact us and they'd have no means to blah, blah, blah. Um, It's still to me so far outweighs the risk inside the facility because we know every phone is now a camera. Okay. And the last thing we want is someone taking pictures in the facility and blasting it all over social media. And next thing you know, people's confidentiality has been violated on a grand scale. Right, right. Without their expressed written permission. So other than that, you know, we, you know, as a, as a policy, you know, we have limited, if not totally banned, clients access to technology. But one thing that we did start to do differently is even when we started this radio show, each facility, or let me just stay with the residential. The residential facility had a uh, a client computer in the dining room. Right. And they would use that for, you know, writing resumes or making appointments or what have you. And they were also using it to live stream the shows that we were doing. Now, 
Everything changed, however, in 2016 when we went under the organized delivery system in this county because people were no longer in residential treatment longer than three months. Whereas prior to that, they could be in there anywhere from six months to a year. And so someone needing access to a computer to write a resume, submit job applications, and all that stuff made sense. Now there's really no need for them to do that because all of that is done in lower levels of care if they move to the recovery residence and all that stuff. But one of the things that started happening, and we've had, I would want to say maybe three to four episodes of this, is people um, misusing and abusing the computer and the Internet access. And, of course, I don't have to go in detail to say the ways they abuse it, but not only social media, but going to websites that they shouldn't be going to and things of that nature. So, like, right now, as, of, as, as we speak, the residential facility has no client computer. There's nothing that they have access to to, you know, do whatever. Play game, play video games, or uh, you know, game, you know, whatever they might use it for that's appropriate. And part of the reason why that's the case is because I want to say we're in what we're in May, mm, sometime in uh, September, Octoberish. Um, clients were caught, um, you know, spending an inordinate amount of time on social media, going to uh, porn sites and so on and so forth, and uh, we we just about ripped the hard drive <laughs> out, <laughs> right, of that, right out of that computer, um, and told told the the group at that time because now it's a different group of people in treatment now. But the group at that time, we said, "Wow, this is going to be your legacy of yep. this group. It's going to be your legacy that you caused the client computer to be pulled from the family." Because of your misappropriation, your misuse, your abuse of the privilege of the computer and Internet access. And it has not been restored, even though, you know, I've heard, you know, through the grapevine, some clients want, wanting to, you know, recertify the computer and get it back up uh, with Internet access. No one has put forth a good proposal uh, to reinstitute it. So, you know, I'm saying, well, if no one's interested, I'm not going to push it. Um, I know I would if I, you know, if I was in treatment, I, I would push it. But, you know, maybe it's not important. And that's fine if it's not important. You know, what you don't know won't hurt you. It's, it's not something they have. So they don't know what they're missing. And in real, yeah. reality, they're not missing anything, to be honest. They don't, there's no, there, there's no need for it at this moment it's true. in time. It right. just be a privilege, you know, something to do and use. But it could be abused. So. Right, of course. And with all the structure and then also, you know, it you know, the spirit of the T C is still captured in the fact that the peers bond with each other. And so we've got a volleyball court out here and we got weights and we've got a pool table and we got a whole closet full of board games and card games. And these are all ways they can interact with each other. You start to include technology and technology is very exclusive. It's not inclusive, right. right? You see people going out to dinner, uh, any parent with kids, and everybody is on their own phone while they're eating dinner together at a restaurant. 
uh, you know, you can get lost in these kinds of things. And then it kind of eliminates that peer bonding aspect of the TC, which is so crucial to, uh, you know, to, to kind of the whole holistic approach that we like to give. Right. Um, so that's where it stands right now with the clients in terms of their uh, um, privileged use of technology in the in the facility. But the big change, the huge change that's that we're now starting in, we're in the baby steps of, is with the staff and the actual provision of treatment. So let me explain what I mean by that. So one thing that happened first was the our doctor that we're associated with um, meets with clients via what's called telehealth. Others may know it as telemedicine. We call it out here telehealth. And he reviews every chart of every client that comes into treatment, especially their medical history, to make sure that there's nothing outstanding and needs immediate attention and that the client can start treatment. There's no medical concerns that need to be addressed before they start treatment. And so he pretty much medically clears them to start treatment. And sometimes... The don't, way he does don't that. Don't mean to interrupt either, sir. We'll, we'll let you keep going. Just check your phone when you have a moment. But we're all ears. Okay. Um, but he doesn't need to see every client. But there are some, some. You know, let's say there's one, two, three, or four in a month that there's a red flag, and he will through video link meet with that client in private to discuss whatever concerns he has, and then makes arrangements for that client to have those issues addressed. Okay. And that's done through a, a, a video conference, <clears throat> but in a private private room, you know, et cetera. And all of this is uh, compliant with all of the confidentiality requirements that you have to have in place. So he's been doing that for, I want to say, we're in 2019, going on three years, or three, between three and four years. And what we've since done, I want to say, Mr. Producer, correct me if I'm wrong, in the last four months, we've instituted now using that same video conferencing for our staff meetings, our trainings that we're doing in it, when we do in-house training and so on and so forth. Um, and part of the reason why this came to, came to pass um, is tremendous traffic that has now be you know just fallen upon us in the area that we're located in in, in Silicon Valley. Um Mr. Producer, I understand you need to take a break. Maybe he's already taken that. He had to take a little uh a break to address something. So in Silicon Valley the traffic in the last three years has doubled. As an example, it used to take me five minutes to get from my office home, and now it takes me between 30 and 45 minutes, depending on if I leave at 5.30 or 6.15. So the traffic has doubled. 
And one of the things I did not want, our residential facility and our recovery residence and our main office, it's about six to seven miles distance between them. And you do have to get on a highway to get there. And it got to the point where if there was a meeting at 2 o'clock and you wanted staff from the residential facility to come over to the main facility, uh, the headquarters facility, to attend the meeting, um, they would t- it would take them 45 minutes to get there. And then when the, you know, so it would have an hour meeting, hour and 15-minute meeting, and then it would take another 45 minutes to get back. So you lose all of that time just in travel and just to go six miles. And so what we decide is that, you know, we need to use, have technology help us um, accomplish meetings without our staff having to spend what turns out to be 90 minutes driving six miles there and six miles back in total. That's all lost time, lost uh, productivity, um, lost time with the clients. And so now we use video conferencing and it's offered for every single meeting. And so if there's a, or let's say the residential staff meeting on a Thursday and the deputy director who's based out of the Redwood City facility, not the East Palo Alto facility, uh, wants to attend, but it doesn't make sense for her to drive there and waste, you know, 45 minutes driving there. Um, she can just attend via video, via video link. And, you know, this technology is not new. It's just new to us. And we're like, you know, wow, we, you know, why didn't we take advantage of, of this before? So it's now required that every standing meeting, that means a meeting that are normally scheduled meetings, so staff meetings, committee meetings, et cetera, all the meetings that we have to have, um, as a normal part of the meeting process, you know, when the agenda goes out by email, you know, part of the thing that now goes out is, hey, if you if you if you want to attend by video conference, let us know so that we then send you a video link invite, and you can, you know, wherever you may be, even if you're driving in your car, you can, you know, just use the audio portion of the link um, and participate that way. And I use it often because I, I, you know, if me in my role, I mean, I'd be hopscotching all over the place, trying to be present in meetings. Um, and I stopped doing that, and I just resorted to just attending specific meetings and reading the minutes of other meetings so I can stay in the know of what was going on. But since using the video conferencing, I can now actually be present in the meeting, if not physically present, but can either be on an audio link or an audio-video link. Um, and that makes a tremendous difference in terms of being able to answer questions in real time or ask questions in real time versus reading the minutes, seeing what's been said, and then asking a question, you know, post the meeting. So that's something we now do. We've been doing that. I want to say, Mr. Producer, we've been doing that for, let's say, a month and a half, two months, solid? Just about, yeah, just about, yep. Right. So tomorrow, tomorrow will be our first test. We we have held in that two-month period, we've had a couple of trainings, but they're in-house trainings, and we have also used the video conferencing for those, not only for attendance, even though, you know, it's really the managers that may use it for attendance, <clears throat> but years ago, we used to videotape our trainings so that staff who, for whatever reason, couldn't attend the trainings um, could look at the training, at, right. you know, at a time convenient to them. Right. And we kind of went away from that 
for a number of reasons, or a couple of reasons. One is that it's a whole rigmarole to set up a video camera and all that stuff. <clears throat> and then to put it onto DVD, you know, back then, <laughs> you know, back then, so people can then put it in a DVD player and watch the training. So now we use our video conferencing program um, in a special camera, which I'm not going to plug because <laughs> we're not getting any money to plug it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> but, it, but it is a great camera. And uh, we use that to record our trainings. Um, and then there's a link that we send out to staff, you know, and they can just watch it, um, which is so much easier. So tomorrow, though, it will be the first time that someone from outside of our, our organization is providing a training to our employees remotely. So they're in a remote location, wherever he may be. Um, I think he's in Los Angeles. And he's doing an infectious disease training. And staff at each facility will be in their various, you know, their two locations um, and will participate via video link. Um, and so it will be interesting to see, you know, how that goes. Um, how the interactivity presents itself and is utilized, um, because to me, th this is the way of the future. For 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 not when I say us, I don't mean OCG only, but for for all the providers. Because one of the things I said is, uh, Mr. Producer, what if there is a speaker who speaks on a subject? that is extremely relevant to something that we're doing and this person the topic is 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 something that ties in perfectly to something that we're doing and they're at the top of the profession in terms of speaking on this subject but they're in South Dakota right 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 you know yeah. what I'm saying yeah exactly and you don't want to be uh, cut off from that from that uh, asset essentially right and since we don't want to spend six thousand dollars flying them out to silicon valley and having them stay in the four hundred dollar a day hotels that they have out here um and all of that you know the person can do what the doctor is doing tomorrow on the infectious disease training and present their training through video conference and all the staff can attend and not we don't have to leave the facility that's so, right that is um for the staff that is one way or multiple ways that in in the administration of treatment the uh you know enhancing our uh, professionalism um et cetera via trainings that we can be more effective and efficient by using technology. So we have started to do that. And I know in the private sector or in other areas of the nonprofit sector that, you know, people will probably say, and rightfully so, is like, wow, you guys are like 10, 15 years late, late to the party with this stuff. And my answer is, I know. I know, right. I know, I know. But um, you – But I, I say I – for our field, we're we're probably pioneering this. We may be. I, well, I know locally we are because every every 
contractors, meaning that I go to, I'm always pushing the use of technology. We, we don't have to continually drive to all these county meetings. Why doesn't, you know, every time I'm, you know, the county, I'm always saying, hey, why don't you guys allow, you know, video conferencing so people don't have to drive and try to find parking and whatnot and blow. By the time you drive to the meeting, sit for an hour and a half, and have, then get back to your, your facility, um, you know, that's three hours. Three yeah. hours of your day are gone. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be. I'm not saying that every meeting has to be that because, for example, let's say the, the contractor's providers meeting with the county is one every month. You can say, hey, starting off, you're like one every quarter will be in the person, but the other two will be, you know, remote, remote access. And, you know, with video, like you can still see the people. So it's not like, you know. You know, and, and we, you know, it's funny because we do a monthly conference call with the department, but for a specific subject that we do it for, um, and it's only for providers who are dealing with this particular issue. Um, but I'm not sure why they they don't grab onto that. But I'm going to keep pushing it. But back to us and 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 providers like us. You're probably right, Mr. Producer. We're probably, to some degree, pioneering its utilization. Um, I'm sure there are a couple other providers that are really doing the telehealth thing, um, which brings me to my next point regarding the telehealth, because, you know, this is a national push of providing telehealth services. And the kind of, you know, what kind of at the root of this push is in the rural parts of the nation, rural parts of the state, rural parts of the county, where there are not providers, either medical health providers or substance abuse providers, or just providers of any type of health service. Um, they're trying to make sure that, you know, unless someone needs physical treatment for a medical concern, but if it's if they need, you know, to talk to a, a, a medical professional of whatever type, that they can use video technology to have the appointment versus someone driving 100 miles to the nearest clinic. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So, so that's kind of the, you know, the root of this push to really um, engage technology to do tele, tele, what they, you know, they call telemedicine. We call telehealth. Same thing, just different terminology. Um, before I go on, I have to tell you what I, something I read this morning, and I knew I was going to talk on this topic. So I was like, how ironic is this? Um, but it just shows you that it doesn't make a difference what it is that people will always find a way to try and get over it. And so there's a, there was a big sting of people committing telemedicine fraud. The same right. way they commit, you know, Medicaid fraud, Medi-Cal fraud, which is, you know, billing for a service they didn't provide. And only this time it was regarding telehealth services, telemedicine services. I'm like, wow. So they've already started on that now. And what happens is when that happens, they start to restrict instead of opening up telehealth to so you can provide more and more services via that venue, they start to now restrict it. Because we don't want people to take advantage. We don't want people to, when I say take advantage, I mean fraudulently take advantage of this opportunity to provide services this way since it's not face-to-face, okay? Um, so they start to restrict and constrict it, 
um, rather than opening it up. So I, I wasn't too pleased to, to read about that. And then I think it was amounted to like uh, okay, over $2 million, which is a lot of money. So a side note from that, aside from that, what one thing that I did, and I want to say this has now been about three weeks ago, is I did a pilot with the client's residential facility. Um, I set up the video conferencing in the dining room. Um, I went to my office, and I kind of did a, an instructional seminar with them about uh, remote um remote meetings, remote seminars, remote data sessions, things of that nature. And then, so I spent about 20 minutes talking to them remotely. Um, I wanted to see what it was like for me talking to a group remotely. I wanted them to experience it from their end. And then I went back down to the dining room and and talked to them face-to-face to get feedback from them, what was it like for them, told them what it was like for me, um, what, and what what their questions or concerns were. And we had a very, very good conversation. It's a very important conversation because I told them, I said, look, this is coming down the pike. And so I wanted to check it out, and I wanted to hear what you guys had to say about your experience. And there's some very, very good questions they asked about confidentiality, about um, their comfort level, um, and whether or not if they know that there's a camera present, you know, you know how free and forthcoming will they be? Um and, you know, so these were all great questions, legitimate um, concerns, and some who were, you know, like, you know, it took you guys so long because they do this everywhere else, not necessarily every, you know, like treatment, but, you know, just in other facets of life in the world, they use this technology, you know, so, yeah. you know, it's no, not surprising that you guys are also going to try, try to use it to, you know, uh, become more effective and efficient. So... Most of the questions were regarding confidentiality, but one, the breakthrough came. The breakthrough came is when, when people were talking about their their concerns about a camera being present, um, and it being recorded, and where does it go, and so, who has access to it, and all that good stuff. Very good questions. Um, I had everyone turn around and look behind them, because you know, in the residential facility, the dining room, there's two cameras. Yeah. The whole facility is under video surveillance, inside and out. So um, I said, you guys know that there's two cameras in here, but you just forgot about them, and you just go about your daily living. You don't pay any attention to them. Um, right. Because after a while, they just, you know, become, they just meld into the background, just become part of, you know, the environment. But they're recording 24-7, you know, 365 days. And the recording stays for about three weeks you know, before it starts recording over itself. I said, so it's a, there's already video surveillance happening. And so as you, even when you sit in the group in here, in this dining room, that group is being video surveilled. It's just that we, we haven't used it. We haven't used these cameras for those purposes. So what we're, what we're instead doing is we are using a camera that's actually designed specifically for what we're actually want to do, which is to um, have the ability for you to be able to sit in this dining room in front of that huge television 
and have somebody be 2,000 miles away providing a seminar to you guys on a particular subject that we think is absolutely important and that you need to hear. Right. And after I said that, everybody except one person got it. And they were like, oh, yeah, you're, you're right. That, that is a great use of it. Yeah, having that kind of access, it's, uh, it's invaluable. Right. The other thing that I mentioned to them is that, unfortunately, because one, one client did mention something, again, it was very good about, you know, you know, after, you know maybe after the first or second time you, you, you experience it, after that you don't pay any attention to it and you just go about your daily business. Um, if it's in a group, which will be far and few between, um, or in a seminar or whatever, um, you know, you just get used to it. But unfortunately for clients in the residential program, and this is something we're still discussing internally, they may not get used to it because it's not going to be used that frequently. And so each time that it comes out, it's going to be a novelty. And when something's a novelty, you behave differently. We're going to test that theory, but we're concerned that that would be the case. And the reason why... Um, it, it will be a novelty is because you think about it, someone that's going to be in treatment for 90 days, what are the uses of this technology in the treatment environment for, with, with, with clients being involved? One, you might have someone do a remote seminar, okay? Two, you might have a management person, like the deputy director, wants to audit a service to make sure that it's being facilitated correctly, okay? Three, um, it might be used to um, – so we covered a remote seminar by someone not affiliated with us, auditing of the services, and three, a remote service by someone affiliated with us. But those are going to be, especially at this point in time, so far and few between that you might be in treatment for 90 days and never experience it, or you might experience it one time. And so it's just a novelty to you. So we'll we'll see how that eventually plays itself out, but ultimately we do want to be able to use it for those purposes um, because if you think about it, Mr. Producer, and, and, and you know, I'm sure you've had this experience, when you want to know if your staff are facilitating a particular group properly, just the, just the facilitation of it. Not you know, You're not worried about the content of the group. You're really looking at them and to see what they're doing. You know, you would ordinarily you'd have to just sit in the group, right? And and audit the group in person. And so you'll be like a a, a participant, non-participant. Yeah, right. Exactly. We used to actually we used to sit on the outside of the circle so that the number of staff didn't overwhelm the group, which would shut down client participation. So we wouldn't actually insert ourselves in the group. We would just be sitting on the outside just to watch how it unfolded. Right. And, you know, to a certain degree, the same concerns would, 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 would be present um, because if you're not in the circle, you're outside the circle, you know, a client would be wondering, what are you doing? Why, why are you in the room, but you're not in the group, so on and so forth? Mm-hmm. Um, so we obviously want to address that 
not sure how yet until we experience it to see what the feedback is um, and then take the feedback and, and move forward with it. Let the feedback instruct us on how we will may address some of the shortcomings in that area. But we definitely want to use it to audit groups because some, some services happen at 8.30 at night. You know, like sometimes evening wrap-up might start between 8 and 8.30, and you want to, you know, sometimes uh, the welcome interview happens at various times of the day, um, and no one knows in advance when it's going to happen, uh, but you want to be able to see, hey, without having this, and that's an example. The welcome interview, you, you, I don't know if that's something you actually want to sit in on because of the nature of it. Um, but you would want to find out, hey, how is that being facilitated? Is it being facilitated in accordance with our policy and procedures, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, and more often than not, when something is being audited, only the camera is going to be present, not the person who's actually doing the audit. So the camera will record the group and everything that's transpiring. And let's say Danny might, you know, two days after the fact, when she has time, you know, decide to review the record it, recording to audit the group. That's how I envision it, at least. Because to me, if you're going to be sitting there in the group, why would you be recording it at the same time? Um, right. So those are the purposes that I envision with client involvement. Um, and to me, the most uh, tantalizing one is the provision of services via uh, telehealth services, via the remote link, um, providing, you know, doing a, um, not a, not groups, because I'm not sure where that fits in with the regulations, doing a group service, but doing a seminar, doing a meeting, doing a data session, um, things of that nature. That's my vision, Mr. Producer. That's my vision. I, I like it. It's a great vision. Um, you know, I think access, I think that's a big thing you pointed out. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, what if somebody across the country is doing a seminar that could be absolutely crucial to, uh, you know, to your recovery and it's information that you wouldn't want to miss. Um, that, you know, that's, that's something that's major. That's something that can't be overlooked. Uh, and then in addition to that, like you said, just kind of, um, functionality efficiency, as far as staff, maybe, getting to trainings that they wouldn't be able to get to otherwise, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, either because it would take up their whole day or because it's not even accessible depending on the location. And so being able to, I mean, we've kind of been beta testing this, I want to say. I think, like mm-hmm. you said, tomorrow is kind of the uh, the real test um, because it will be used on a, on a larger scale at multiple sites from, um, you know, uh, for a training that's also being done by somebody. So there will actually be three locations involved. Right. Um, the, the, you know, the two sites that we have in addition to the, uh, the trainers location. Um, but I think this is all very, very good. This is all stuff that we should be doing uh, to be proactive. And, um, you know, I anticipate that it'll go well. I can't see why it wouldn't. <laughs> Well, Mr. Producer, as a person who has uh, been partly responsible for the 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 IT aspect of sometimes setting up the video conferencing for various meetings, you are you are well aware you are well aware of some of the the technological hiccups uh, 
that can uh, come into the equation. Certainly, certainly. But that's not to say that, you know, technical hiccups aside, that generally what we're doing is going to be really, really beneficial, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just a quick note on uh, on tomorrow. As you noted, tomorrow is like really the real test because, like you said, it's multiple locations. And a, 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 even though the doctor that's doing it is, is, has an affiliation to us, but it's really like it's an outside person from their location uh, providing a very important training on infectious diseases to all of our staff. And we're not all at the same site, but we're all participating at the same time. Yep. So it'll be a very good test of our uh, technical aptitude. <laughs> yeah, our, our technical aptitude and our uh, how good we have set things up to 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 make sure the interactivity. What I mean by that is, you know, people asking questions and being heard, okay, and all of that good stuff. Um, how all of that's going to work? Right. You know. Right, and and the technical stuff. I mean, you know that that's beside the point of the bigger picture. I mean, the technical kinks can be worked out, but um, but yeah, tomorrow will provide a, a great kind of uh, platform for us to see exactly where we stand, especially with as many moving parts as there are, because we really haven't done this with multiple sites yet. Right. Well, Mr. Producer, that's all I have uh, on the subject. The last thing I do want to say is um. Again, uh, I'm I'm putting myself out there at the forefront trying to push others to go this route, especially our um, quote-unquote government stakeholders uh, to go that route. Because, I mean, like, for example, tomorrow morning I'm participating on a training, a webinar training being being given by the state of California, um, you know, and otherwise, you know, what, 10 years ago, you'd have to drive to Sacramento or drive to San Jose, you know, wherever the hell they're going to be holding the training. You know, they always pick someplace not near us um, right. to participate. Uh, so even the training you went to, that last training that you went to, Mr. Producer with the county, um, yep. I advocated for that. Hey, can you see if that could be made available via webinar also so people who can't you know, physically make it can still participate. Um, obviously, that didn't happen, um, but I'm going to continue to ask. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we can only, especially as we continue to progress and have good, uh, like, outcome with it, you know, that gives us more of a ground to stand on as well, you know. The other thing, Mr. before we close, is, and, and we can maybe talk about this in another show as a sidebar, but the other area of technology that we are that's coming down the pike in terms of incorporating it into the provision of treatment services is when people leave treatment and you want to have some contact with them or they want to have contact with you but not necessarily come to your facility or come to your location in person, but they want to have some kind of contact with you, that that is facilitated by some means of technology, not only phone but also text, uh, video link, and things of that nature. So that's also coming because they're, they're also pushing that as a means of keeping people connected and, t- and, sure. and connected to treatment. Or that recovery, recovery per se. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we're our, our goal, right? Our whole purpose is to service the clients. And so if we can come up with a way using technology to better service clients for like continuing care, I think that's awesome. Yep. All right, sir. All right, great stuff. Well, thank you, everybody, who uh, joined in today to uh, listen, or those of you who will hear this on the in the archives through the podcast. We appreciate that. All the uh, listeners and all of the ongoing support are greatly appreciated. Uh, we wish everybody a safe handful of weeks here, some productive weeks and fun weekends, and we will catch you all on the other side.
that's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.